Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be gathered together again on the Lord's Day. And we do expend, uh, extend especially a warm welcome in the Lord Jesus Christ to our visitors and our old friends who've gathered with us this morning. And as we continue in the worship of God, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to the Gospel of John as we turn to the preaching of God's Word. And this morning we want to consider John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. John 8, 1 through 11. John 8, 1 through 11, depending on the translation that you have, you may find that this section is either put in brackets or it may have an asterisk uh, uh, before it and after it. Um, but I'll make some comments about that as we, as we begin this morning. But let's read this passage and then we'll pray and we'll seek the Lord's help. John 8, 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Amen. Let's pray together and seek God's help. Father, as we've sung, we now come to your word, realizing our need of your help. We thank you for the marvelous grace of our loving Lord that pours out upon Your people grace upon grace. In Christ, there is a fountain, a never-ending fountain of grace that is available to us. We thank You that He is our great and our perfect High Priest. Every need that we have, we find it supplied in Your Son. In Him are found all the spiritual blessings that lead to eternal life. In Him we find our justification and our sanctification, our adoption, our glorification. 
Father, we pray now for more of Christ, greater measures of Christ, that He would dwell within our hearts richly by faith. We pray for Your Spirit to pour out and to communicate to us more of the blessedness of knowing Your Son, that as we see Him more and more as He is, we would be made more like Him. Father, we pray that as we come to Your Word this morning, and not only in this hour, but as we come upon the beginning of a new week, that You would cause the the allurements of the world to grow uh, dim, to fade in their uh, attraction to us, that the things of worldliness and sin would, would pale in comparison with the glories of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Truly, Father, in light of eternity, in light of the last day and the final judgment, only what is done for Christ will stand. And so we pray, Father, we would be found doing what is pleasing to Him. Be merciful this morning to those who don't believe Your Word, who don't trust Christ. We pray, Father, through the ministry of Your Word, by Your Spirit, convince them of their own poverty and their need of Christ. And may they today come and close by faith with Christ. Glorify Yourself, we pray. Build up Your people. Make us more useful in Your kingdom. Strengthen us in our assurance of Christ. Do all these things for Your namesake, we pray. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we pick up again uh, this morning in the Gospel of John. We finished chapter 7 last week, and we come now to John chapter 8. And while I usually, I usually, we, well, always, I preach from the New King James, probably most of you have the ESV, and so from time to time, you're aware that we run across slight differences, different words here and there, and usually I don't make a point to make any big deal about those. Usually they don't have any significant bearing on the passage at hand. But this morning, I do have to say something about this section that we're considering because it is one of the two longest textual variants in the New Testament. Okay, and uh, when I say variant, what I mean by that is our Bibles, as we have them today, didn't just magically fall out of the sky one day, but rather they are compiled based on actual ancient manuscripts that exist in many different languages. And as you get more and more manuscripts copied by more and more scribes, inevitably what you're going to get is more and more variation. And by and large, usually the kind of variations that we see are as small as the the changing of one letter within a word. It doesn't have any bearing on the meaning of the text. Other times the tense of a verb will be different. Um, other times there are, you know, a scribe might have accidentally skipped a line, things like that. Occasionally, here in John 8 and in Mark, the, end, uh, the ending of Mark 16, it's somewhat of a bigger question of does this, act, this entire section actually belong here? Was this actually written by the original apostles? Was it inspired by the Spirit of God? Or was it something that was maybe added in later as a commentary Uh, And then eventually it kind of got included in the text itself. That's the kind of question that we're faced with with John 8, 1 through 11. And just to kind of give you some of the, you know, C-spot run 
You know, I'm not going to go into a whole, it, all the issues of textual criticism this morning. But just so, so you know, John 8, 1 through 11 is not included in the vast majority of our earliest manuscripts. Okay? Um, and in the manuscripts that do contain this story, it's very interesting, it's not always found here. There are various other places in the Gospel of John, some manuscripts included in, and in fact, sometimes we find it even in the Gospel of Luke. And it, it raises the question of authenticity. Okay? Um, usually, if a text was originally written by an author, it, you wouldn't usually find it just moving around to different parts of, of the Bible. Um, also, there's the issue of the vocabulary of this section, which if you compare it to the rest of John's Gospel, it is very much different, somewhat out of the norm of the way that John usually, uh, usually writes. And honestly, when we talk about these issues, it's one of those things where you're going to make friends and you're going to make enemies no matter which side you take. And you don't have to worry about that because no one cares what you think. I'm the guy who has to talk about it publicly. Um, and it, it's... It's one of those things where, where for instance, um, let's say that I just came up here this morning, didn't say a word about this, didn't say anything, just went on, you know, at like our, our normal selves as we usually do, and I don't mention the fact that, you know, most early manuscripts don't contain this. Um, I don't mention the fact that, and this is very interesting, all of the early church fathers who wrote commentaries on John they skip right over this section, showing that this didn't exist, at least in the manuscripts they had. Um, if I just did that, didn't, didn't say a word, and just said, well, it's, it's in our Bibles now, and so we must accept it, some of you would right, rightfully say, you're just blindly believing whatever someone tells you ought to be here. Um, and, and you would have questions about that kind of approach. Are we really thinking critically about what God actually meant to include in the Scriptures and, and what he didn't. Um, we all do textual criticism. Okay? Some of us do it more, um, what's the word, at a more elementary level than others. Some of you have taken classes on textual criticism, so you know more than other people might know. But let me give you an example. If I went home this afternoon and I wrote a new story about Jesus, and I wrote it down and I even wrote it down in between chapter 8 and chapter 9 of John's Gospel. If I come back next Sunday and say, hey guys, here's a new story about Jesus. Someone wrote it. It exists right here between chapters 8 and chapter 9. What would you do? You would rightfully do textual criticism and you would say, no, <laughs> that manuscript, though it technically exists, isn't legitimate. You can't, you know... What authority do you have to just all of a sudden insert that and say that belongs here? If I were to say to you, well, you just don't believe the Bible then, because here it is in my Bible, you would obviously say, no, it's not that we don't believe the Bible, it's that we question whether the manuscript you just produced is actually intended to be in the Bible. Okay? So, I started off that way because spirits, I, I've had this discussion with plenty of people, and I know spirits tend to run high, and, you know, I started off that way to say, regardless of which side you all fall out on this, let's just keep some of the accusatory statements like, well, you just don't believe the Bible then, if someone might have suspicions. 
Let's just leave that out of the discussion. Let's talk about textual history and things like that. We can still all be friends and be brothers and sisters, regardless of which side you, you fall out on, on this. Um, personally, I mean, there's arguments obviously made for both sides. Personally, I think it's hard to, to embrace this as at least originally written by John. There are other theologians, some of my heroes, even like R.C. Sproul, who hold the position that, you know, this might not have been inspired through John's hand, but he did believe it was still inspired, and God intended it to be in the Scriptures. Um, Here's how I'm going to approach this text. Regardless of which side you fall out on, this text does agree with the rest of the revelation God gives us in the New Testament, and therefore it's filled with glorious gospel truth, And therefore, it's worthy of our consideration and still worthy of our belief, even if you don't think that maybe it actually doesn't belong here. Okay? So that's what we're going to do this morning. Rather than just skip over it and give you all, some of you, a heart attack, and why did he just skip a part of the Bible, we're still going to consider it with some of those caveats. Okay? So, with all that aside, let's now actually get into the text. That was six minutes of textual criticism, introduction. That's out of the side. I'm not, or that's out of the way now. I'm not going to say anything more about that this morning. So, let's now turn to our exposition of the text, and then we'll turn to um, three um, three devotional considerations from this text as we approach the Lord's table this morning. Okay. So let, let's begin with our exposition, and it's at this point. If you have your Bible, if you have it open, this would be the time, especially, to have it open so that we can consider the text together. Beginning in verse 1, picking up from John 7, the Feast of Tabernacles, it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, this is the next day, He came again into the temple and all the people came to Him and He sat down and taught them. Okay, So the scene here is still the Feast of Tabernacles. It's still Jerusalem. They're at the temple. The day before this, the rulers are frustrated in their attempts to seize Christ and arrest Him. And so they departed that night, each went to their own house, and now when they show up the next day, they they have already fabricated a brand new scheme or trap to catch Jesus. And that's exactly what this is. Okay, This is not sincere. This is not a, a real heartfelt question they're posing. This is a trap. Verse 6 tells us that. This they said to him, testing him, so that they might have something of which to accuse him. They are maliciously, willfully trying to thrust Jesus on the horns of a dilemma that they hope he won't be able to answer without getting into trouble. So, what's the dilemma? Verse 3, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Let me say something first off about this situation. This woman, I'm not saying that she's not guilty, okay? I'm I'm not saying that there isn't a level of shame that she ought to feel for her actions. There is, okay? But nonetheless, this poor woman is being used by these men, okay? And at, at that level, it ought to evoke from us pity for her. There is a time when people's sins need to be brought out in the open. The Old Testament calls for that in certain situations. But 
these men are not doing this because they love the glory of God. They're not doing it because they care about this woman or because they have a holy uh, you know, hatred of sin or anything like that. They are parading this poor woman around for their own gain. They want to catch Christ. And this woman is simply a means to that end. Okay? Um, and so it says, when they, when they had set her in the midst, so she's placed there as this object lesson for all of these men to just make a judgment on. Um, they said to him, verse 4, teacher. So they're pretending respect for him. This, you know, they're pretending to be sincere and respectful. Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, a couple of things just on that note. First of all, they inform him that this woman was caught in the act to emphasize to Jesus that they are not asking Jesus whether or not she's guilty. Okay? They want to just fly right past that. We don't care what you think. We know she's guilty. She was caught in the act. They want to press him with the question, not whether she's guilty or not, but what ought to be done with her? Do you agree with Moses or not? That's the first thing. But the second comment on that, on that um, fact that's included here, that she was caught in the act of adultery, think about it. If she was caught in the act of adultery, where is the man here? Adultery is not a crime that you can just kind of, you know, commit in private somewhere. Where, where is he? They, they claim to want to strictly hold to the Mosaic Law. Well, the Mosaic Law would have demanded the death of both of them. And yet, here she is, all by herself. He's not anywhere to be found. Which I think, we'll get to it in a little bit, I think there's an implied reason for that, that probably whoever this man was, he was either a friend of the leaders or maybe one of the leaders themselves who was actually engaged in this. Perhaps that's how they knew it was even happening and were able to catch them. So whatever, however that's explained, something isn't right here. And so then, nonetheless, they present the dilemma to Jesus. So here's the situation. She was caught in the act. They don't comment on where the man is. But they get to the point. Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Right? That's, that's what they're trying to catch him in. Now, there's some background here that we need to understand that makes this situation a dicey situation. Um, some of you know this. Some of you might not be familiar. At the time of the New Testament, Israel is not exactly a free nation. They're under the bondage of Rome. And when Rome took over Israel, while it's true they did leave Israel by and large free, they, they left them a unique freedom to practice their religion of monotheism and things like that, yet the Romans did still impose some significant things, one of which was when it comes to capital punishment and the death penalty, Israel was not just free to be self-governed in that regard, but Rome had to be involved. That's why we see that even when Christ is crucified, that it's not just something that happens within Israel, but it's uh, Pilate and, and the other uh, governors are involved. Um, and so, at this point in history, 
the Jewish people have already been stifled somewhat, if you will, from actually strictly adhering to their, their own law. And that was especially true of capital punishment for some of these crimes. Um, so, these leaders come to Jesus and they say, hey, Moses says this is what needs to happen. What do you say? Well, that obviously puts Christ in a difficult spot. If he just goes the route of, well, stone her, that's what Moses says. Number one, that would, that would be shocking because capital punishment really wasn't done that much in this day in Israel. Um, secondly, it would get Jesus in hot water because he would basically be taking the power of capital punishment to himself, which would be viewed as treason against Rome. And they could just run off to, to the Romans and say, hey, here's a, a guy guilty of sedition. And thirdly, they probably think if he goes that route and says the woman should be stoned, they think that's in contradiction to his message of accept, uh, what's the word you would use? Forbearance and forgiveness of those who would usually be just considered the outcasts and the sinners of the Israelite society. So that's his one option. What's his other option? Well, the other option is he can just say, yeah, Moses was wrong. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for whatever reason, we're not going to enforce that today. Well, that's the very thing they wanted to catch him in. That's what they want to hear him say is, I disagree with Moses. I disagree with the law. So you see how he's in, a, in between a rock and a hard place. If he says stone her, they're just going to run off and say to the Romans, this guy's, you know, guilty of treason. If he says anything besides stone her, they're going to say, this is a guy that winks at sin. He doesn't believe in the law, just like we've always said. So, what does he do? Well, Jesus does what anyone who is faced with a dilemma would do. He stoops down and he starts writing on the ground with his finger. <laughs> I'm surprised I actually got through that with a straight face. That's sarcasm, because if, if any part of this is mysterious, it's what on earth is going on with the stooping down twice and writing on the ground with his finger, okay? Um, obviously, as you can guess, the subject of much speculation by many commentators. Um, I'll, I'll say something about that, um, but I'll, first I'll read the text. It says, Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear them, okay? Now... I'm usually, when I read uh, commentaries, and I do, I, I almost always read at least some commentaries when I prepare for sermons, I keep an open mind. I'm open to speculation on certain things. Um, now, having said that, not all speculations are created equal. And, um, but especially when you get passages like this where the text doesn't say anything about explaining it, you've kind of got to give room to... It's not that clear, so naturally some people are going to have some more outlandish ideas. But I will say some of the things I've read on this text are uh, very fascinating, to put it, to put it nicely. Um, some are just absolutely sure Jesus must have been writing Jeremiah 17, 13 in the sand, which I think is pretty precise. Um, and Jeremiah 13 says that those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. And so they think, well, because that talks about being written in the dust, Jesus is writing on the ground, that's, <laughs> that's what's happening here. I think that's a stretch. Um, others think it's not even important what Jesus was writing, but rather it was simply the fact that he was writing that 
the religious leaders would have understood that Jesus was saying, you are the ones that Scripture writes about. Again, a stretch. How would they, I don't know how they would connect those dots. The, not the last, but the last one I'll mention is some, and honestly, if, if I had to, if you forced me to kind of tip my hat towards one, this would be the one that I would kind of, even though I'm not saying I necessarily am, am you know, firmly asserting this. Some have seen the connection between Jesus writing in the, in the ground with his finger. They've seen a connection to, to Exodus when God writes the two tablets of stone with his very finger. I think that's the strongest connection in terms of actually a reason. And in that scenario, it might some have interpreted it as Jesus is basically saying, I'm not undoing the law. I don't disagree with Moses. I was actually the one who wrote the two tablets of the law with my very own finger. I think that's possible. But here's the, here's the bigger point. Regardless of whether that's possible, we just don't know. The text doesn't say. And we need to be... When, I mean, when God closes his mouth, like Calvin says, we need to be content with that and go no further. Um, and it's okay that we don't know what he was writing because even in this passage, whatever he wrote doesn't seem to have that much bearing on the situation. And I'll make a comment about that in just a second. In fact, Matthew Henry, I actually, I, I, well, you know I always respect Henry, but I, I really respect him in this regard. He really doesn't think there's very much to read, be read into this writing on the ground. He just thinks it's, it was kind of Jesus' way of ignoring them. Like, hey, why are you trying to make me a judge in Israel? Like, you guys are supposed to be the leaders. And so Matthew Henry just takes it as he was just going on with his teaching lesson, teaching the people, and letting them know, like, I shouldn't really be bothered with this. This is your guys' problem. But anyway, so ver- let's pick up in verse 7. It says, so when they continued asking him, when they continued asking him, now that's significant because what that means is that whatever he was writing didn't give them an answer, right? And I think that's significant because some people think that the key is in whatever he wrote. And if we could just know what he wrote, we'll know why they responded. That's, they didn't respond the way they responded because of what he wrote, but rather of what, because of what he said. So, they're still asking him as he's writing, hey, what's your answer? What, what ought we to do with this woman? After they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him uh, throw a stone at her first. And he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, Christ here shrewdly and wisely avoids the trap that they were trying to set for him. Notice he's he's um, he's steering the ship in between the two you know the two two sides that could lead to shipwreck. Notice he doesn't deny that the woman is guilty. He does he also doesn't deny that according to Moses she deserves to be stoned. He doesn't deny that. What he does challenge is whether they are qualified to sit in judgment on her. So, Matthew Henry says that Christ owns that it was fit that the prisoner should be prosecuted, talking about the woman. He owns that she deserves to be prosecuted, but he appeals to their consciences whether they were fit to be the prosecutors. That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is appealing here to the rule that was, that's laid down all throughout the Mosaic Law, 
that when someone is to be executed for a capital crime, it is the hands of the witnesses that have to be the first against, uh, to carry out the death penalty against the accused. Right? You can find that in Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, and plenty of other places. When someone testifies against someone in a capital crime, they have to be the first ones to throw a stone, if it's stoning. They, their hands have to be first upon that person. And that was the Old Testament's way of, one, ensuring that they are true witnesses, that they're actually willing to have that person's blood on their hands, but it also was a way to show that they weren't themselves guilty of the crime. When Jesus says here, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. He doesn't mean by that the only one who can ever enact civil justice is the one who's perfectly sinless. I know that's the way that this passage is usually used today. And and they basic people will use it like, hey, if you're a sinner at all, you have zero right to actually make a judgment on anyone else's life or sin. And they say, Jesus says so. If you're without sin, then you can throw a stone. That's not the context here. Um, what, what he's saying, I mean, if that were the case, you think about it, if someone had to be sinless in order to actually enact any sort of judgment, we would never have anyone condemned of any crimes because there's never been a sinless judge. What Jesus means here is he's talking to these leaders and he's saying, let those of you who are not guilty of the very sin you caught this woman in throw the first stone. In other words, he's saying, if you guys have your ducks in a row with the seventh commandment, then sure, go ahead and do it. But what he's doing, and we're seeing here the omniscience of Christ, he knows the thoughts of men, he knows what is within man. He's calling out their immorality. They are guilty of fornication and, and adultery and covering up for it, for their friends, which, as I said, very well may be the scenario that's happening here. Matthew Henry says, it's very absurd for men to be zealous in punishing the offenses of others while they are every whit as guilty themselves. And then, after he gives this answer, Jesus goes right back to writing on the ground. He, wasn't, he couldn't be bothered when they approached him with the question, and after he gives the answer, he goes right back showing that he doesn't, he's not bothered with whether they care, whether they like his answer or not. And he just goes right back to stooping and to writing. And so verse 9, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, that's a variant, that conscience part, they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Now, it's amazing. These leaders, this was their scheme, their trap, they thought they were so smart. They came this morning fully intent to put Christ to shame, fully intent, uh, intending to leave him utterly humiliated, and yet they are the ones who now leave one by one utterly humiliated. More than they could have ever, ever anticipated. Jesus basically gets them to admit by his one sentence and by their silence, he gets them to admit that they are just as immoral as this woman and therefore not fit to condemn her. And it's the oldest ones who lead the pack in this. And why do you think that is? 
It's because the oldest ones have the most wisdom about them, in, in a carnal sense, and they realize this man knows where the bodies are buried somehow. He knows where our skeletons are. And so let's all just kind of bow out here before this gets any more embarrassing for us. And this, it really is the opposite of the woman at Samaria, uh, in Samaria, the woman at the well. Christ tells her her sexual past, and she runs out of joy and excitement. Come, here, a man who told me everything I ever did. And she's excited because she says, this is a prophet. Could this be the Christ? She knows that, yes, he knows me, and yet he's willing to be a gracious Savior to me. These men are struck with the same reality. This man knows everything that we've ever done, and yet their response is the exact opposite. Let's get out of here before he reveals that to anyone else. And so they, one by one, oldest to youngest, leave. And Jesus, picking up verse 9, Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those, who, those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Okay. So notice, notice what's happened here. He didn't undermine the law. He didn't relax the law's demands. Rather, he pointed out the, the leader's unfitness to be un- enforcers of the law because they themselves are lawless. And so he's saying, he's, he's not saying to this woman, woman, you don't deserve to be condemned, but he's saying those men are in no place to condemn you. Now, you think about it. That's good, that's good news in one sense for this woman. But it's not yet good enough to put this woman at ease, is it? Because all that means is that, yeah, this particular group of men is not fit to execute judgment and condemnation. And, and that shouldn't put any sinner at ease. Just because we can point to others who are guilty in the same ways we are and say, therefore, they can't condemn us. Okay, sure. So maybe some men aren't in a place where they can condemn you, but God can. And that's the point here. Christ is still standing in front of her. So the question is not ultimately, what can these men do to me? The question is, what's the judgment of Christ upon me? What does the one who can throw the first stone say? What does the one who can sit in judgment upon my sin say? And brothers and sisters, this is the glorious, this is, this is where the gospel shines forth in this text. Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. And here's the thing. When he says that, Christian, neither do I condemn you, he doesn't say it in the sense that those other men would have to say it. He's not saying, I'm not fit to condemn you. He could justly and consistently def- uh, condemn this woman for her sin. But he says, neither do I condemn you, not because he couldn't, but because he uniquely has the power not to condemn and to forgive sins. 
And this is where we see the irony. They're, getting him to, they're trying to get him to prove that he contradicts Moses. Jesus did not come to contradict Moses, but he did certainly come to bring something greater than Moses brought. That's different from contradiction. Right? Chap- Remember John 1, 17. Great, or, um, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, yes, he does come bringing with him something different than Moses brought. Not in contradiction to Moses, but in response to the insufficiency of the covenant that Moses brought. What we're seeing here is they are accurate in understanding Moses. Moses brought a covenant, not that God gave it through Moses, the old covenant, he brought a covenant that yes, set the standard of holiness and it declared the penalty for what it meant to break that standard of holiness. But the Old Covenant doesn't give forgiveness. Doesn't give reconciliation. And now Jesus comes bringing a new covenant. Hebrew says built on better promises because it has a better mediator. And he says, I've not come to contradict Moses, but I have come to be greater than Moses. As he demonstrates here, he gives to this woman who was condemned to death under the old covenant. He brings to her the blessings of the new covenant, and he gives to her reconciliation, peace with God, adoption, and the blessed assurance of knowing all of my sins have been put away. That brings us to our, our final section now. That, that's, our, that's our exposition. And I wanna, I'm going to break, usually we do exposition, doctrine, and, and application. I'm going to break from my usual structure this morning, mostly just because we had to deal with the textual issues and it just it threw the rhythm off and it would be too long. What I want to do now in our remaining time is with especially in our mind the fact that we're soon we're going to together approach the Lord's table together is I want to draw out three meditations from this passage that we ought to take to heart and keep in mind as we come to the Lord's table. Okay? Belie- and I, I want you to hear this. Regardless of which side you fall out on the textual issue, whether you believe, yes, this is authentic, John wrote it, it belongs here, whether you're more on the fence, I'm not really sure. Regardless... Listen, it cannot be denied that this text is packed with gospel truth, okay? And gospel medicine. Number one, meditation number one. This is perhaps the most obvious and just one of the most glorious things that the Christian, every Lord's Day and every week, especially at the Lord's table, we should rehearse this again and again in our minds. Namely, This woman and the story of this woman caught in adultery and then Christ coming to her aid to advocate for her is a parable of every Christian's life. This story is a parable of all of our story if you're in Christ. And that applies to you whether you are the out-and-out sinner like this woman the adulteress, the the profligate, or 
whether you were the Pharisee goody-two-shoes raised in a Christian home whom Christ got a hold of. Either way, this passage speaks of a helpless sinner who is saved by a mighty Christ and strong Christ who advocates for her when there is no one else to advocate for her. And that's the glory of the Gospel. Christian, you should see in this woman yourself. Let me just say, if you read this story and you're immediately thinking of, yeah, this is something for the bad sinners, you've missed the point. And I mean that entirely. That's concerning. This is not about the bad sinner. This is about the sinner. Of which all of us should say of ourselves, we are the foremost. We were this woman doomed by the law of God, caught in the act. Think about the the sudden shame and, and, and how exposed this woman was. No matter how much we might be good at hiding our sins from others and convincing other men to think, oh, you know, he's such a great person. You knew at some point, because of the gracious work of God in your heart, you knew it doesn't matter what anyone else sees in me. God sees all of this, and this is really ugly in here. This woman was caught naked in a place where she shouldn't have been. No cover. And... As hard as it is, Christian, for us to think about the, the, how much her heart must have sank as she was exposed and how much shame she must have felt, that is the perfect analogy of what the sinner feels when he realizes, I am caught by God. That's a frightening thing when that dawns in a sinner's mind. And, and they realize there's no way out. I can, I can pretend to be something I'm not. I can hide things from other people. But God sees everything. He sees my heart. He sees my thoughts. He knows my words before they're on my tongue. And I'm undone before Him. And it's like a bad dream. And no matter how many ways you try to replay it, it all ends in the same way. Condemnation. How shall I escape the wrath of God that is coming? Like John Bunyan. John Bunyan was so plagued with that in that season of his life that he, I've said this before, he literally wished that God had created him to be a beast or an animal instead of a man so that he at least wouldn't have to worry about issues of eternity. Such was he plagued. And Add to that, the devil and his minions, they play prosecutor in that lost soul. Just like these Pharisees are doing to this woman. And the devil and his minions, they set the sinner in the midst of God's uh, courtroom, if you will, and they begin to raise their accusations. And they appeal to God's justice against the sinner. The devil knows that he's not fit to execute judgment, but that does not stop him from appealing to the one who can. 
And he says to Christ in our own conscience, Christ, look at this one. This one is worthy of condemnation. You've said so yourself. Your law, your servant Moses said that this deserves death. Look at his life. And the devil throws the book of the law at you. He he stirs up the memories of your sin. And he says, look at the impurity. Look at the fornication. Look at the adultery. Look at the greed. Look at the covetousness. And the sinner is just undone and beat up like this woman. This poor woman, it seems like she's just so tired of being thrown around from prosecutor to prosecutor that she basically has just been brought to the end of, you know what, I don't know who Jesus is, but she doesn't even go away when the other ones go away. She just stands there. as if She just wants to get the judgment over. And unbeknownst to her, what a glorious place she's standing in. Because standing in front of her is the greatest friend of sinners that this world has ever known. Any other prosecutor that had been sought by these men would have left her grieving and more despairing. But the one that God in His providence has her standing before is the friend of sinners. In front of her stands the only advocate between the sinner and the Father. A defense attorney, if you will, for our eternal state. And Christ is not, he's not a snaky lawyer who knows how to get people off the hook because he knows how to twist the law and he knows how to hide our sins so that we don't look as guilty as we really are. That's not how Christ advocates in the sinner's behalf. Christ does not bring superficial and dishonest remedies to get us off the hook for our sin. He doesn't silence the law. No. This one advocates on the sinner's behalf on an entirely different basis. He knows that his father's law is good and righteous and upright. And he knows that this woman, just like every single one of us, stands condemned under that law. Without exception. No question about it. But this advocate has five wounds which make all the difference in the sinner's case. Five bleeding wounds which he received on Calvary's cross. And he says to our accusers and his father, it is true, this one deserves to die. No question about that. It is true, the law condemns this one to death, but I have something the courtroom must see. And Jesus, in the presence of His Father and in the presence of our accusers who hate us, He says to the courtroom, see my wounds. And see in my wounds the proof that all that justice has required of this poor sinner has been satisfied by me. 
See that the law says of this one, she deserves to die. He deserves to die. Look at my wounds and see I have died for them. The law says this one deserves to be accursed and cut off. See in my wounds that I was accursed and cut off by my Father for their sake. And let the whole courtroom, courtroom know that what the Father has required at my hand, He will not require again at theirs. Christian, that's the gospel. This is the gospel. What happens to this woman? Christ bids all of our accusers flee away. In the courtroom of heaven, He exhibits His own work in the sinner's behalf and After he shows his precious blood spilt for sinners, he says to us, like he says to this woman, Sinner, where are your accusers? Does not one of your accusers remain to make another charge? To which we may respond, No one, Lord. None of them condemns me. Because Romans chapter 8 Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. When Christ the Advocate shows Himself in our behalf, in the courtroom of God, immediately the devil and all of our accusers are silenced. Justice is satisfied and our conscience is put at ease. Like Luther, Luther said, when I look at myself, I do not know how I can be lost. Or I, when I look at myself, I do not know how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I do not know how I can be lost. Christian, as we come to the table in a few moments, come to the table for, for this strong Christ, feeding upon this Christ. He doesn't give to us superficial answers to a deeper problem. He gives to us the greatest answer. The once for all eternal sacrifice of Himself to satisfy the law of justice, to take away the wrath of God and to put our conscience at ease that I am a child of God, pure and spotless because of Christ. That's the first thing, most lengthy. Let's move on to the second and the third. Second meditation here. Number one, or sorry, not number one, number two, second meditation. Let us contemplate how free and welcoming the grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ is. How free and welcoming the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is. This woman is brought to Jesus just as fresh as you can be off the heels of sin. And scandalous sin at that. She was caught in the act of adultery. That that was something that would have made her an outcast in Israel for the rest of her days if she wasn't put to death. Just forever known and forever marked by that sin. It would define her. And that's not how Christ treats her at all. 
Christ receives her with tenderness and compassion. Now, don't misunderstand. Christ's reception of this woman is not without his faithful rebuke, right? Go and sin no more. Christ's grace is not a winking at sin. It's not a grace that applauds or or enables sin. But Christ's grace is an extravagant grace that receives us as we are even before it transforms us. And Christian, we need to get that order right in our own minds and for the sake of telling others the great news of the Gospel. Is it true that Christ transforms sinners? Yes, that's true. And that's yes and amen. That's a glorious truth. That He turns adulterers into faithful saints. Real, tangible change. Okay? That, that deserves an Amen. Christ makes Christians different from the world. However, just as important, so that we don't turn grace on its head, Christ doesn't receive us because He transforms us, but simply because He's a glorious, gracious Savior who receives messes and who receives sinners. Right? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Romans chapter 4, God always justifies the ungodly. And Christian, the more I live as a Christian and the more experience I get as a pastor of, of Christ's people, the more I realize that we are all messes. Every single one of us is a mess. Not denying the reality of God's grace in our life. But every single day we come to Christ, we come to Christ as a mess to a gracious God and Savior. That wasn't true of us ten years ago, and now we come to Him all put together. Some things He's fixed. Again, we don't want to discount the reality of God's grace. But woe to the man or woman who suddenly thinks, I'm coming to Christ now because I'm basically on par with Christ. (laughs) Never. We always remain beggars. And we come and we're thankful that Christ isn't content to leave us where He finds us, but we're also thankful that He's willing to receive us wherever He finds us. And that is glorious good news for the sinner who's never trusted Christ and glorious good news for the saint who has trusted Christ. You might be here this morning. You don't usually visit church, maybe. And you, you know things that we don't know about you. And you are just fresh out of the muck and mire of sin and the world. And... You might be thinking to yourself as you look around here and you're just thinking, what on earth am I doing with these people? (laughs) Look at how clean they look and how they're dressed and look at how their their kids, you know, all sit in a straight line. Um, I'm so dirty compared to them. Some of you are laughing because it's not true. It's not true of my my kids probably. Uh, 
And, and you're, you might be thinking, I'm so dirty. I'm such a sinner compared to them. Listen to me. You are, first of all, exactly where you belong and where you need to be. And secondly, don't get the wrong impression about us. We are all messes to one degree or another. We are beggars who, by the grace of God, have been taught where to find bread. And that bread is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to you, chief of sinners, he says, come to me without delay. Don't try to clean yourself up. Don't try to hide your sin. Don't try to make yourself look different than you actually are. He says, come to me, sin and all, and I will make you a child of God. And from that glorious position, I will then begin my work of actually transforming you into acting and behaving like a child of God. Sinner, you can come to Christ this morning without any fear. Your sin is not a hindrance to Him. I guarantee you, no matter how sinful you are, there has been someone more sinful who has come to Him before you. And even if there weren't, if you really were the chief of sinners, Paul says, you can come to Christ. He already knows your sin. And Christian, you come to the table for the same exact Christ, with the same exact disposition. You come for grace. You don't come clean. You come to be cleansed. And so let us come this morning, boldly. Let us come like Peter, after his denial. Not making light of our sin. We don't want to make light of it. But we also don't want to doubly offend the glory of God by not believing His promise that even though we have sinned, yet does He love us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Some reason we can believe that and yet we struggle to believe while we are yet sinners, Christ still loves us. And yet, that's the gospel. Thirdly, and briefly, in a, just in a word, the grace of God teaches us to um, the grace of God teaches us to go and sin no more. That that's Jesus's final departing woman to, uh, word to this woman, as far as we know. Go and sin no more. And Christian, I did, I want to just in very briefly, as we come to the table. There is no greater incentive for holiness for the child of God than the free grace and love that God, our Savior, has bestowed upon us. Okay? The threatenings of hell has its place. The threatenings of punishment for disobedience, that certainly is something that God uses to steer the Christian away from the paths of sin. But it is supremely the free gift of God's eternal love to us, the Father's love to us in Christ Jesus, such that He sent His Son for me 
to die and to rise again so that I might be justified, sanctified, and glorified in the presence of God forever. It's that reality and realizing I did nothing to deserve it. I did everything to not deserve it. It's that reality that doesn't just scare us away from sin, but warms the heart and says, my Father, may I never live in such a way as to dishonor such a Savior. Go and sin no more. From love, free love, freely bestowed in infinite measure, now go and sin no more. Christian, as we come to the table this morning, let's come hungering, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. A righteousness that is ours because of a love that preceded our love for God. He saw us when we were gone astray, and yet He set His sights of love upon us, and He came to effectually recover us to God. And therefore, let us seek bigger views of grace, bigger views of divine love, and let us walk carefully, knowing that such is the love God has had for me. May I now respond in gratitude to live in all of my ways before Him, pleasing in His sight, doing that which brings Him honor and glory. Let's let's pray together. Father, we pray now as we come to the table, minister to our hearts. You are a gracious God. So patient you are with your children. As a father pities his children, so you pity those who fear you. And we thank you for your pity. We thank you for your long suffering. Father, we confess that we, even the most mature amongst us, we are messes. And we are like this woman, every day and every moment in need of pardon, in need of cleansing. We are weak, but you are strong. Your gospel is strong, able to withstand all the assaults of Satan and hell. Such is your love that nothing can separate us from your love that is eternally in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, write your word upon our hearts. Give us, as we reflect on passages like this that speak to us of how ill-deserving we are of grace and how gracious you are, we pray it would transform us also into being more gracious people. That we would be long-suffering with those who struggle. Lord, that we would look upon sinners with pity knowing that what they are we once were or easily could have been if it were not for your grace that caused us to differ. We ask, Father, that you would genuinely humble us so that we believe that and we don't just say it with our mouths. That we would be like Christ, a merciful friend to sinners who are out and out. Help us, Lord, to share the good news of Christ, that we would offer the freeness of grace. And we pray that your Spirit would bless our feeble efforts and that he would draw sinners to Christ and save them. 
Father, bless us now as we continue at the Lord's table as your people, bought by the precious blood of Christ, made one by the blood of Christ. May we demonstrate that unity both here but also as we live our lives together, that we would love one another as Christ has loved us. That we would lay down our lives for one another as Christ has laid down His for the church. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.